There, I do want to thank Pastor Steins for the opportunity to preach. I certainly don't take it lightly. Um, but as you're turning there, if I can uh, talk about just, just one quick story about prayer and then share a very special prayer request with you. Um, William Carey, he was known as the father of modern missions. Uh, he was sent out of America. He was sent to India. At that point in time, India and many parts of Africa were known as the white man's grave. Many missionaries, they packed their belongings, all of their, their earthly belongings, they packed them in a coffin, put it on the ship, and then sailed to the mission field because they were going knowing that most likely they would lose their life. And William Carey, as he was about to be sent out, he said to those pastors who were sending him out, he said, I feel as though I'm being lowered into a deep, dark pit by a rope. He said, I feel like I'm on the end of a rope and I'm being lowered down into this deep, dark pit known as the white man's grave. And he said, I don't know if I'll make it through. And then he said this, he said, but if you'll hold the ropes in prayer, I know my God will see me through. And church, that's our greatest desire is that you'd hold the ropes, and that you would pray for us, pray that God would use us. You know, Gracie and I, we can go to the United Kingdom, we can do a lot of stuff and just a lot of stuff. And without God's help, that's all we would do is a lot of stuff. But when God gets in on something and God begins blessing something, then true work is done. And we ask that you'd pray for us. If I can share one special prayer request with you, it's not about the mission field, but about my parents. Um, my dad is pastor of the Bible Baptist Church up in Ligonier, Indiana for over 20 years. And um, this past October of last year, my mom had a stroke. And uh, she's doing well. Um, she's recovering well. But just this last week, my dad fell. And uh, they thought that he was okay. He was just having a little bit of pain. And the pain got worse, and he was just admitted to the hospital tonight. Found out he did break his leg. And uh, so if you just pray for him. He's 71 years old, about to be 72. And uh, just pray for him, for my mom, just with her understanding of the entire situation. But if you would please pray for them. And pray for the Bible Baptist Church. Uh, my dad is the only staff member there. So there's not many people who can fill in for him while he's in the hospital. But if you would pray for him, his name is Pastor Harold Heaton. Uh, I would greatly appreciate that. Thank you so much. But if you found your place there in Mark chapter number 9, we'll begin reading in verse number 14. Mark chapter 9, verse number 14, the Word of God says, And when He came to His disciples, He saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld Him, were greatly amazed, and running to Him, saluted Him. And He asked the scribes, What question you with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him. And he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answereth him, and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. I like, with the Lord's help, to focus in on the last four words there, verse number 19 this evening, where Jesus Christ, as He's speaking to His disciples and He's rebuking them really for their lack of faith in this moment, He says these four words. He says, bring Him unto Me. And church, this evening, with the Lord's help, I'd like to give you this thought, four words to guide your life. Four words to guide your life. And it is these four words, this command of Christ, bring Him unto Me. And before we jump into this passage, would you bow with me in prayer? And let's go before the Lord and ask His blessing on this time. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee for this day. And Father, we thank Thee for the opportunity that we have to gather together in this place as Thy children to worship Thee and to hear from Thy Word. Father, we praise Thee for the liberties that we are afforded in this country. 
God, I pray as Christians, we would understand that we must continue to take hold of these liberties if we are to keep them. And Father, that I pray that we would understand that we will never be the citizens that we need to be right now if we are not first the Christians that we ought to be. Help us to follow after Thee. Father, I pray even now as Your Word is opened, God, please help me as I would preach. I cannot do this without Thee. Father, be with Thy children this evening. May Thy Holy Spirit be working in us and speaking to our hearts. And Father, I pray if there's one here who has never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, God, I pray this evening they would understand that they are, yes, a sinner. They are in need of a Savior, but that they would trust Christ and be saved. Father, may You gain every blessing, all honor and all glory this moment. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Four words to guide your life. Jesus Christ, He says here, bring Him unto me. And as we come into Mark chapter number 9, we come uh, to the first part of this chapter as something that we know, an account that we know as the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus Christ, He takes His three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they go up into the mountain. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is transfigured before their eyes, that His earthly flesh begins to peel away. His heavenly glory begins to shine forth. And we know that account. We know the words that are spoken. He's speaking with Elijah and Moses, and, and Peter speaks there, and God speaks, and after that, at verse 14, now we're coming down off the mountain. And as they come down off the mountain, they come face to face with this great multitude. And as soon as the multitude sees Jesus Christ, they begin running to Him. And this isn't the message, but church, how wonderful it is that when Christ said, if He is lifted up, that He will draw all men to Himself. And there was a lot going on in that multitude, but once they saw Christ, the focus changed. It didn't focus on the, the, the arguing and the fighting of the scribes and the other disciples. No, it focused on Christ. And if we would just lift up Christ, that's where the focus needs to be. But as Christ comes down, this multitude runs to them. And he asks this question in verse number 16. It says, and he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? And notice in this passage, there's a great need. Church, can I say we're living in unprecedented times. It's a word I didn't really hear used much before the last couple months. But we're living in unprecedented times. There, there is nothing that has quite happened before in our lifetime that could match what's happening now. If I could say this, your pastor's never pastored through the effects of a global pandemic before. Now you can say it's your decision over whether it is a global pandemic or whether it is not, but we are seeing the effects of a global pandemic. And your pastor's never preached, never pastored through it. We've never lived through it as Christians. There are many decisions we don't have the answer for. There are many choices that we have to make that we may be unsure how to make. But God gives us a command right here in Scripture, right in the midst of the problem, one of the greatest problems to this point that these disciples had faced. He gives a command that can guide every one of our lives in this time. And it is this command, bring him unto me. Church, if I can say this right at the onset of the message, we do not save anyone ourselves. There's not a single sin that Jonathan Heaton can forgive of my own, let alone anyone else's. We cannot save anyone, but we know the one who can. We know the one who has already done the work. And, and God Almighty doesn't say, bring them to yourselves. No, He says, bring them to me. Every problem, every person, every decision needs to be brought to Christ. We must understand this, that every child of God has the opportunity to be used by God. And as we understand the condition of the world around us and we bring lost people to Christ, we will see the miracle that the gospel can perform in every life. One preacher, he said it this way, 
He said the highest form of worship is the worship of unselfish Christian service. The greatest form of praise is the sound of consecrated feet seeking the lost and helpless. And Christ says it very simply. He says, bring him unto me. As we dive into this passage, would you notice first with me the condition of this son? Here in verse 17, after Christ asks about the scribes and what the argument is about, notice the scribes don't answer, but this father does in verse 17. And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him. And he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. Church, notice this son. He's possessed of a demon. He's being controlled by this demon. The Bible says that it taketh him. He has no control over when it comes. He has no control over when it leaves. He has no control over his physical body. The Bible says it taketh him. And then it says it teareth him. He has no control over his safety. This demon comes whenever it wants to come. It does whatever it wants to do with him, and it leaves whenever it wants to leave. Later in the passage, this father says that sometimes it throws him into the water. Sometimes it throws him into the fire to try and destroy him. He has no control over his safety. It says it teareth him. It says that he <clears throat> foameth and gnasheth with his teeth. And then it says this phrase, and pineth away. That phrase, pineth away, means that this literally withering away. This father was watching as his young son, his only son, it says in another passage of Scripture, was withering away day after day. And we must understand, church, that this son, in full desperation, his father brings him to the disciples, and ultimately he brings him to Christ. But we must understand something. We live in a world full of people who are just like this son. We live in a world full of people that something takes hold of them. And church, may I say, it takes hold of them from the moment of birth. It takes hold of them from the moment of birth. It comes in whenever it wants to come. It does whatever it wants to do. It never truly leaves while we're here on this earth. But the end result of it is a withering away. It is a destruction. The end result of it, this thing, this thing that is called our sin nature, the end result of sin in the life of any person is destruction. Now understand this, church. It's not just destruction in an unbeliever's life. Sin still destroys the life of a believer. Now I'll explain that in a second. But think with me about an unbeliever. The Bible says in the book of Romans, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. My dad says all the time that all means all and that's all all means. Everybody. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We understand that every one of us are sinners. The only man in this world who has ever not sinned was the Lord Jesus Christ when he was here on earth. He was the only pot, uh, perfect spotless lamb. Every one of us are sinners. Later on in the book of Romans, the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. Understand, the end result of sin in the life of someone who has never trusted in Christ is death. Not just a physical death, but a spiritual death. The Bible says that for eternity they are separated from God Almighty. Church, you know what the worst thing about hell is? It's not fire. There is fire. I believe in a literal hell. There's not fire. Or excuse me, it's not fire. The worst thing about hell is not fire. It's not gnashing of teeth. It's not the demons that are there. It's not the devil that is there. The worst thing about hell is not what is there. The worst thing about hell is what is not there. God Almighty is not there. And when someone dies that has never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, they are separated from God for eternity. They are separated in hell. On the flip side, what's the greatest thing about heaven? Not, not to split the auditorium here. I'm not, I'm not trying to split the auditorium. But what's the greatest thing about heaven? Well, it's not the street of gold. Now, that's going to be amazing. It's not the mansions. It's not the angels. Praise the Lord for the hope that we have in Christ. The greatest thing about heaven isn't even the, the family members that we will meet there. 
My wife and I both have siblings up in heaven that we've never met. You know, that's not even the greatest thing about heaven. The greatest thing about heaven is that God Almighty is there. God's presence is there. And one day, we will be just like Him because we will see Him as He is, the Bible says. And as, as God's children, as the children of God, we will be with Him for eternity. But as we come back to this, this sin and destruction, the end result of sin in the life of an unbeliever is eternal destruction. What about a believer? You know, sin still destroys in the life of a believer. Now, we are secure in Christ. I believe that when John 3.16 says everlasting life, that God meant everlasting life. We are secure in Christ. But sin can still destroy a testimony. Sin, when it's allowed to come into the life of an unbeliever, and it's allowed to stay in the life of an unbeliever, it's allowed to fester, it's allowed to work around in the life, excuse me, of a believer. I keep saying unbeliever. In the life of a believer... When sin comes in and stays, it still brings destruction. It can destroy testimony. It can destroy opportunities for lost people to hear about Christ. I think of someone who I was very close to growing up that was my youth pastor growing up. And this man was uh, about to take the church from my dad. He was working on his ordination service. My dad was filling all that out and getting all that ready, and he was going to have his ordination service and, and take the church as the pastor. But my former youth pastor allowed sin to come in. And he allowed sin to stay. We're all still sinners. We all still sin. But we can't allow sin to stay. And he allowed sin to fester. The end result of his sin was not just a broken home and a broken marriage. The end result of his sin was 50 teenagers that never came back to church. An entire youth group that never came back to church. You see, church, sin has a destroying effect. And just like this son was being destroyed by this demon, we live in a world full of people who are being destroyed by sin. But you know what our first reaction is most times? Our first reaction is that when we see someone who's really stuck in sin, that we just want to go up and say, well, let me just fix this for you. Well, hey, if you'd stop going here, doing that or doing that, you'd be fine. I think of a pastor that we were with last summer. He was talking about his wife, and his wife was the church secretary. And he said in 15 to 20 seconds from the walk of the, uh, the door of the church to their car, he could fix whatever problem she told him about of whatever member who called the church. He could sit down and say, well, if they would stop that, stop that, stop that, their problems will be fixed. And his wife said this. She said, I didn't tell you so you could fix it. I told you so you could feel. You know, church, God doesn't want us to fix the problems of the world around us. He wants us to feel for them and then bring them to the one who can fix it. Do you know, do, do you remember the, the first time in your life where you truly understood that your sin, not your parents, not your siblings, not your pastor, your sin was against an almighty God? Do you remember the fear in your life when you realized that your sin, the only sentence it had was a death penalty? I remember the first time as a seven-year-old boy that I understood that just because I dressed up and my dad was the pastor didn't mean I was going to heaven. I remember the fear that I had when I realized my sin was against an almighty God. But then do you remember the moment that John 3.16 really clicked? When you truly understood that you didn't have to pay for your sin because someone had already paid for it. Someone had already laid down their life and became... Uh, the propitiation of your sin. That spotless lamb was laid down in your place. Do you remember the joy? You see, God doesn't want us to just try and fix the world's problems. No, church. God wants us to feel for them where they are and then bring them to Him. And this son, 
He was so taken by this, this demon, excuse me. He was so controlled by this demon that no one could help him but one person, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the condition of this son very quickly. Notice the inability of these disciples. In verse number 18, look at the last half of it. The father is continuing to speak. He says, And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Now church, understand this. Just three chapters before in chapter 6, the disciples were given all power over demons. They were given the ability to cast out demons. So in chapter 6, if they were given the ability, how, how come in chapter 9 they're unable? They could not. I would submit to you that these disciples, they needed a reminder, not about what they could do. They could do nothing on their own. They needed a reminder about who gave them the power. They needed a reminder that it was not about the disciples, it was about God Almighty. You know, they got accustomed to the blessing of God. They, they got used to God using them without thinking about God using them. Church, this is something we must be careful about. May we never be known as the church that could not simply because we grew accustomed to the blessings of God. We started thinking about everything God was using us to do and not about God Himself. We started thinking about, man, I, I preached that message. Well, I witnessed to that person and I didn't stutter once. That will never happen in my life. But I did not stutter once. And we start thinking about everything we're doing and we leave God out of the picture. We quickly become the church that cannot help people. And we must understand from the lives of these disciples that God gave them an ability. He gave them power that they could use. And they thought about the power, stopped thinking about God, and they no longer had the power. Can I say it this way? Yesterday's blessings don't promise today's success. Just because we were in the place we needed to be yesterday and God used us the way that He wanted to use us yesterday doesn't mean that our heart left unchecked, God's going to use us again today. These disciples were unable because, as Jesus Christ said in verse number 19, O oh, faithless generation. They lost faith for a moment. They didn't rely on the Lord for a moment, and they were unable to help. But notice this command of Christ, and this is the message right here. Verse 19, O oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Church, notice this. This is the most encouraging thing. In the midst of Jesus Christ rebuking His disciples for really their greatest failure up until that point. Peter hasn't denied Christ. The disciples haven't fled in the garden. This is their greatest failure. And as He's rebuking them for their greatest failure in their ministry, He still says, hey, I know you failed, but why don't you still bring them to Me? He still wanted to use them. Church, can I say all too often we fail... We try and rely on ourselves to fix some problem, and we fail, and then as soon as we fail, we think, God can't use me anymore. I failed the Lord. God can't use me. There's no way that God can use me anymore. I've just, I'm just too big of a failure. But church, it's in the very moments that we fail that God says, hey, child, bring him to me. Just bring him to me. You're not able. I'm able. We have to remember when we can't, God still can when we're unable, he's still, he's still exceedingly abundantly, he's still able, excuse me, to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. He's still able to do it. Think about Peter. You remember Peter walking on the water? Jesus Christ comes walking across the water. Peter uh, asks if it's him, and, and Christ said, it's me, don't be afraid. And Peter says, well, Lord, if it's you, bid me come unto thee. And Christ said, come. 
And the Bible says that Peter climbed down out of the boat and he begins to walk towards Christ. Well, then what happened? He saw the wind, he saw the waves, and he began to sink. He lost sight of God. He lost faith and focus on God, and he began to sink. He was unable on his own to do it. And then he cries out to Christ, and excuse the illustration, but did Christ just walk over and say, sorry, you lost faith for a second, sorry, I can't help you. You stopped looking at me, now you're sinking. No, that's not what Christ did. Christ walked up and he, he grabbed Peter by the hand. He set him on top of the water, the water that Peter couldn't walk on. He set him on top of the water and they walked back to that, back to that boat. You see, where Peter was unable, God was still able. Where Peter had water over his head, it was still under Christ's feet. Christ was still standing on the water. And church, we must understand that even if we fail, even if we try and do something ourselves and we're unable, just like these disciples were unable, God is still able. And the greatest thing that God wants us to do is not try to fix everything on our own. He wants us to bring them to Him. One verse, notice with me, verse 21, or excuse me, 22. This father, he's speaking to Christ and he's explaining about his son. He says, And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Notice this. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Church, notice, it's never a question of God's ability. It's always a question of our faith. You know, this, this father said, God, if you can just do anything, if there's anything you can do in the world, just have compassion on us. And Christ said, no, you've got it backwards. It's not if I can do anything. If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. You know, these disciples, they had to have faith. And this father, he had to have faith when Christ said, bring him to me, and they brought their son to him. They had to have faith that when Christ called for them to bring the, the son to them, that God was able to do something. And you know, the greatest if of faith is that if right there. If thou canst believe. That's the great if of faith. Not God, are you able? God says, if thou canst believe. And church, these four words, they can guide our entire life. I wonder, do you have a decision it's been hanging over your head. Something that's really been bothering you. Something that for maybe the last four, five, six months, you're just not sure. Can I say an echo as Christ said? Bring it to Christ. Bring it to Him. Maybe there's a, a loved one that's lost. A son, a daughter, a parent, a grandparent. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe, maybe it's a coworker or a great friend. And you've tried everything you can do to explain to them and convince them. Can I say, bring them to Him. He's able. Even when we're unable, He's able. If I can share one just illustration with you and we'll close. During my time in England, I had the opportunity of spending an entire year in England with Crown College. Two semesters and I interned over a summer. And that's where my wife and I met. Um, I didn't say this before, but if there's anything that I said that just sounds weird about England, my wife is the resident scholar. She grew up there for 10 years. Her parents were missionaries there, so she has all the answers. If I sounded like a fool, she's got the answers. But we met in England, and uh, during my time in England, I had the opportunity of attending a British wedding, a British Christian wedding. And uh, Pastor, I really want to know, is it the same as an American wedding? I wanted to see what it was like. And for the most part, it's the same. They, they march down the aisle, they exchange the rings, they exchange the vows, the I do's, all of that stuff. And then the, the pastor, he pronounces them man and wife, but instead of kissing, what they do is they sit down on the front pew, and the pastor then preaches a marriage 
uh, message. But if you think about American weddings, we have like a 10 to 15, kind of just a little charge. Here's what marriage is. Go out and there you go. This poor couple, they've sat there on the front pew. They've not even kissed yet for 45 minutes as this pastor just, he gets after it. He's preaching. And uh, Pastor James Anchor, he preached a great message. He preached on the marriage at Cana. And he preached how Christ could perform his, he performed his very first miracle at a wedding and how Christ could perform a miracle at that wedding if someone would trust in him for their soul's salvation. It was a great message. After the wedding was completely over, there was a man who was off to the left about halfway back. He was under the balcony. He was all the way back there. And he came to Pastor Zanker. He said, I've got to get this settled. I'm not a Christian. Pastor Zanker took him and another Crown College student aside and uh, they went in a room and the other Crown College student, his name was David. David told me afterwards, he said, John, this guy was kneeling on the ground, tears streaming down his face and he called upon Christ for his soul's salvation. I said, amen. At a wedding, somebody got saved. Praise the Lord. Well, then we found out who Kevin was. That was the man's name, Kevin. We found out who Kevin was. Kevin was the most well-known or one of the most well-known drug dealers in all of Birmingham, England. He was the top of the top. If anybody needed anything, they called Kevin. Kevin passed it out and it went out from there. And you could ask anybody who knew Kevin before that wedding, would Kevin ever become a Christian? They would say, there's no way. Would Kevin ever give up the drug trade? Well, there's no way. Kevin's so far into the drug trade that he's successful at it. Why would he ever give it up? Well, you know what Kevin did that night? Kevin went home, he got rid of everything. Everything. And every time someone picked up a phone and said, Kevin, I need this, Kevin, I need that, Kevin said, no, I'm a Christian. Jesus Christ has changed my life. You need to come with me to church. And as far as I know, to this day, Kevin is attending the Beaches Road Baptist Chapel. And you say, wow. That's amazing. How did that happen? Can I say this? Somebody brought him to Christ. Somebody didn't come to Kevin and say, Kevin, you give up the drug trade and then we'll talk about Christ. No. Someone said, hey, we got to get the inside worked out and then God will work out the outside. You know, church, all too often we try and work from the outside in. That's not how Christ works. That's not how God works. God works from the inside out. If any man be found in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Someone brought Kevin to Christ. Is there someone in your life you need to bring to Christ? Is there something in your life, some problem? Can I give you this command of Christ, these four words? Can I echo them to you? Bring him unto me, Christ says. Bring him unto me. I wonder, are these four words guiding your life? Every decision, is it being guided by these four words? Bring him unto me. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father,